0: Welcome back, you guys. This week, we have such a crazy story for you. Such a crazy story, which I'm pretty sure at this point, most people have heard of because it came out in 2021. Is that right? That's what I've got. Okay. This week, we're going to talk about Misha and the Wolves, which was 2021. It's an hour and 30 minutes long. This is a Netflix documentary. It's directed by Sam Hopkinson we kind of went round and round about
1: whether or not we would do this one because (laughs) Misha and the Wolves, the story, I mean, came out when we were in college. I was in college. I mean, it was sort of a, a a familiar, the story itself was familiar. When the book came out, we were round. Mm -hmm. So uh, we kind of knew a little bit about the whole situation. And so, we didn't want to glorify some of that, but um, I happen to watch it because I get sucked into a good story pretty easily. And I was like, Oh my God, we have to do it. <laughs> it's so good. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited that, um, that we were able to do it. And I hope you liked it because I really liked this documentary. I thought they did a good job with it.
0: I agree. It was very well done. It was captivating. It keeps you mm-hmm. guessing because I didn't really know the story other than when the controversy came out, right? Then I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. So just very footnote Mm -hmm. version or cliff notes version. I'm not sure which is (laughs) appropriate there. I think cliff notes. Anyway, (laughs) anyway, so hearing the whole story from multiple perspectives was very fascinating. Yeah. So the documentary starts off
1: with a lady named Candy O'Terry who is a DJ. She's spinning it up on 106.7. And she's introducing Misha Devonsika, who is a Holocaust survivor living now in Millis, Massachusetts. And she has this crazy story of survival as a Holocaust survivor. So that is the central theme of this whole narrative that she's telling us. And yeah, how it kind of (laughs) became the juggernaut that it
0: was up to a point. And then it kind of fell off. So, (laughs) right. So we talked to neighbors in that as well, who tell us when they first heard the story, it was at a synagogue one day and it was the day of remembrance and they were, you know, having people come up and speak. And I guess Misha's husband was like, you need to tell your story. It's important to tell your story. So she gets up and she tells her story. And here, here's the story she tells. She's a little girl in Belgium and the beginning of world war two. And she's at school waiting for her father to pick her up one day. And he never shows up. And a woman comes up to her and is like, Hey, come with us. And apparently she's taken in by a family who give her a new name and identity and clothes and everything like that. Supposedly, she was seven at the time this happened. And she knew her parents had been deported. The family was Catholic. So she was a hidden Jewish child, right? Which We'll find out. We learn more about that as this goes on. And I've heard about it in the past. There have been other movies about it, how people would take in the Jewish children and hide them with new identities so they wouldn't be taken. That in itself is an amazing story. But she said the family wasn't horrible. They weren't amazing. I think it seemed kind of like meh and is. How it kind of they didn't really treat her like family. That's for sure, right?
1: Right. It's almost she almost gets the heart that they were almost resentful, and I find that interesting because they also agreed to take her in. So they don't really go beyond that. Um, she does have somebody, somebody in that family that is kind to her, and that's there's a grandfather type figure, and they kind of spend some time together and he shows her on a globe or whatever where Germany is and kind of helps her understand what deportation means. Just, you know, not the graphic part of it, but just like your parents were taken here. It's to the East of us or whatever. So I think that was probably the only source of comfort that she had after her world got blown up when she was taken, you know, when she just kind of found herself in this new situation.
0: Right. And on a map, it doesn't look that far to get to Germany, right? I mean, it's like an inch.
1: They probably something. didn't discuss scale, I'm thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's
0: a tough one. So she decides that she's gonna go find her parents. She's gonna leave this house and she took like some belongings, something to drink, something to eat, a knife for protection, and she's and a compass. Sorry, and a compass. And she starts walking east. She's gonna go to Germany and find her parents at seven years old. That's what she's going to do. Right.
1: And the first night she talks about sleeping under a bridge, probably thinking to herself, was this a great plan? (laughs) I don't know. So, and she discusses, you know, it was a lot more than she thought it was going to be, which I think is probably pretty fair for any kid that ran away from home. Like, and go and find my real parents You know like take your Snoopy suitcase And <laughs> hit the road right And then you get like a block down and you're like Fuck right. I don't know what I'm doing But she hung in there She was comfortable uh, I don't know determined certainly To forage And stay in the woods And steal when she needed to I mean and The way this is presented is she was there forever It wasn't like Five days you know months yeah months right so I would like to know did she need a pair of new shoes at this time like kids grow like a weed
0: I thought this same (laughs) exact thing (laughs) yeah when you're seven years old you go through five pairs of shoes that year you grow so fast right but she wasn't eating much though maybe the growth was slowed down perhaps perhaps But yeah, she talks a lot
1: about being connected to the animals and to the forest itself. And it's actually peaceful. And when she would go into a village or a little burg, it was all decimated and horrible and bodies everywhere and all the shit that you think about. Like, if you walked onto the set of Saving Private Ryan, like, that's what I imagine in my head.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. So she tries to stay in the forest, right? Because... There is a war going on at this time. So she, like you said, she steals sometimes out of necessity to eat. And apparently one time a farmer caught her stealing and she runs. And as she's running away, she realizes she's kind of being watched and she gets to a point where she can stop and she looks and she sees a wolf and She wasn't scared. She just thought of it as a dog. I mean, kind of is just a dog. And tried to, like, feed it, and it wouldn't take the food. It was like, listen, little girl, you are the food. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. she didn't think that. (laughs) And the wolf kind of stays with her. As she's walking, she continues to walk. The wolf walks with her, kind of parallel. They gain the trust of one another. And Misha talks about becoming part of the pack, like Mowgli. I guess. I also thought of Jungle Book. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah, she had to be submissive. She had to be low on the totem pole. They would eat and then leave her a couple scraps. And that's how she survived. Really, they kind of took care of her is mm-hmm. how she describes it. And did you get a sense of how she got out of the
1: woods? Like They never talked about Like just one day she just walked out and stuff was cool i don't know so all right
0: <laughs> I, know. I thought the same thing but i didn't read the book or anything else involved with this so it was like did she just get to paris and it was fine i guess she wasn't going to france especially did she just get to like munich or wherever in germany yeah I don't yeah know. just the right timing when nobody was asking any questions i guess well the thing, The thing is is this supposedly happened in nineteen forty one They say she was seven in nineteen forty one and the war didn't end until what nineteen forty five or something so I don't know that she walked for four years. She would definitely have needed a new pair of shoes by then
1: again, I guess we'd have to read the book to actually understand the whole timeline, which is fine. I guess they don't need to you know rehash all this for me, right. The dumb American who doesn't want to read the book, <laughs> I also want to mention so. This living among the wolves or living in the forest among the animals, this is not the only instance of this that has ever cropped up. People have a real fascination with, like, abandoned kids get raised by something. Wolves make sense because they have a structure that would probably support, you know, something like that. But there have been other stories in the past of wild children, basically, and everybody just gobbles that shit up. So, um, you know, I think it kind of struck a good cord with people because the story's really got everything. She was little and innocent. Uh, There's a war going on and nobody really likes the, you know, aggressors, right? The Nazis don't really have good uh, street cred these days. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a tale of survival, you know, kind of pull yourselves up by your bootstrap shit that everybody seems to love and all that. So I can understand how people were taken in and to actually meet someone who, the whole time she comes across as if she hesitant to share it, like her husband, whose name is Maurice, and I love the fucking name Maurice, thank you very much. Uh, Maurice is like, please, Misha, go and share your life tale with, uh, you know, the peeps at the synagogue, and of course they're riveted, and, you know, from there it starts to grow, and, you know, more people hear the story like our friend Candy the Disc Jockey, Pat Cunningham is the neighbor that, you know, kind of talks about You know, how Misha and her husband, once they talked about this, were received in the neighborhood and how, you know, they were really not idolized. It's not the right word, but they were revered. It was
0: a really supportive situation for them. Well, and they do discuss throughout this that the Holocaust was such a horrific event, right? Anyone who went through it and survived it, you don't question that. You don't want to cause more trauma to someone who's already been through so much. And in a community like theirs, it's a fairly small town, you would you would take someone in. You would you would be empathetic to that and want to one, be a part of their lives, because that's a crazy story to have survived and then you're here and you're their friend and you get to be a part of it almost, right? Yeah, absolutely. I got the sense that when the story starts to
1: break, it's late 80s. Was that how you understood it? It's what it sounded like, yeah. Okay. So I think today, if somebody came out with this story, we might scratch our heads because they would be pretty long in the tooth, right? But maybe in the late 80s, this wasn't as strange. Like she would be, what,
0: in her 60s? 50s, even so, if she was seven in 1941, then she would have been born in 36, mm-hmm. so or 34. Sorry, and so in 84, she would have been 50, so right, pretty pretty young, so all things considered, right. And I
1: think that this isn't the only Holocaust story of survival that came out some time afterwards, like everybody came out of this and they were like, took a minute to feel safe again, probably to share these stories. So again, I say, it doesn't surprise me at all that a long-term survivor finally feels able to share her story that all of that stuff lines up and makes
0: sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. She was about the right age. She was from Belgium when all this happened, knowing that, you know, Germany went into Belgium, they were, you know, took over Belgium. So yeah, it fits. the general knowledge of most people (laughs) correct yeah okay cool 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 we meet jane daniel she heard this story in like the early 90s i think she had a small publishing company and she was like oh shit yo this would make an amazing book she asked misha if she'd be willing to publish her stories and of course, Misha is talking about how, you know, the only reason she survived all this was because she didn't trust anyone. She didn't trust any people, just the animals. And so it was hard for her to trust Jane and give her stories to someone else, mm-hmm. right? And it took her a couple of years to say yes. Like, it's not like
1: she was like, mm-hmm. finally, someone has listened to my tale of woe and they can't wait to put it on the printed page. That's not what's happening here. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it was her family and friends who had to urge her to do it and finally convinced her to give them the story. Other publishers around the world wanted to be part of it. They wanted to translate it into multiple languages. Dizzy wanted to be a part of this story. I mean, it does fit with the Jungle Book, so I get it. The book was finally published in 1997. And none other than one Oprah Winfrey was going to put it on her book club list, which is a big deal. Right. So the Oprah
1: book club just made something into a smash, right? Like if Oprah talked about your product of whatever it was, you know what I mean? Like it could have been toilet paper or whatever. It could have been like something really um, (laughs) just whatever it was. And she had such um, clout with the everyday person, right? That those products then just, you know, blew up in the, in the best way. So yeah, this is again, one of those super riveting stories. Everybody wants a piece of it. Oprah's considering it, putting it as, you know, one of her monthly books, blah, blah, blah. Even to the point where it was almost like a done deal because she had a crew film Misha at a wolf preserve or sanctuary and they have some footage of her feeding a wolf and the wolf does some weird shit in there like he puts his paws on her shoulders and he's bigger than she is and then he puts her head in his mouth but doesn't like maul her it's just like a weird feeling out of the situation I don't know but Everybody's cool with this. I think everybody's like holding their breath thinking they're about to watch some kind of horrible thing happen, but it's cool. He takes his head off of her head and then she starts howling and the wolves respond in kind, which leaves everybody with the chills. And it seems right really legit. And even um Joni Saffron, who is a wolf expert, was like, This was the shit of legends. Like nobody does this like she really had a kinship with the wolves and they're wild animals it's not like (laughs) they're like raised in a home so it it just seems like such an interesting I wish they'd shown that footage honestly in the documentary It would have been really cool maybe it doesn't exist anymore
0: yeah Oprah's probably like (laughs) nah because Misha was meant then to go to Chicago to film Right to the segment with Oprah herself. And she ends up not going. Like she gives Jane all these excuses why she can't go and pushes it off and pushes it off. And so that never happened. So that footage is never seen by anyone other than probably the camera people, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I just think it's really interesting because, you know, obviously Misha is in. And then it seems like the tide turns and she becomes not in. And Jane keeps getting all these excuses why she can't do it. And Jane's like, well, to keep this moving along, I think that, you know, we need to keep doing these appearances and kind of drumming up business is the best way I have to say it. But it just seems like for whatever reason, Misha has cold feet.
0: Right. Misha plays it off like all these books have been sold and I haven't seen any of the money or very little of the money. Right she doesn't trust jane they're they're struggling financially her misha and her husband and so that was her perspective on it is what it sounded like to me is she's like listen i'm not going to get you more money if you're not going to give me any of it because this is my story right
1: yeah i did not necessarily have a clear feel on what misha's beef was But I like the way you've explained it and that makes sense to me because it was just like, again, from Jane's perspective, as tensions continue to build between these two is this is not like done yet. Like stuff's not signed yet. Like Mm -hmm. there's interest and there's like intentions and whatever, but it's not in the bag. Like we still have to play along. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she's just, you know, kind of hitting up against this wall.
0: Right. And she's like most authors would kill to have these opportunities. To have their product out there. And Misha was like no. I'm done. Yeah
1: to the point where they end up. In court over this. There is a situation where Misha sues Jane. And it's pretty mm-hmm. nasty. From what. You know. The discussion in the documentary is.
0: Yeah. What was the lawsuit about?
1: So. Misha sues Jane. For. For moolah for it's a financial situation she says that kind of what you have said that what's been sold and what misha has received does
0: not line up she also wants the copyright returned to her name right so then she has publishing rights moving forward this is her story she wants ownership of it. her lawyer ramona hamlin is um she seems like a tough cat right
1: absolutely like a no-nonsense lady And she talks about there's it's very obvious that there were some fraudulent actions by Jane, but we don't really hear about them. (laughs) Like There are some that they kind of bring up. Right. So it appears that they have some proof that Jane had set up an offshore account. I assume it's in the Caymans because that's what all the offshore accounts are. Um, But any overseas money that came in went into that offshore account, which was then separated from the rest of the pool where Misha received her payments from. And Jane doesn't really ever
0: specifically address that. Not that specifically, but what she does say is that everything that Ramona and Misha bring up, she has documentation to prove otherwise, right? Here are the canceled checks from you cashing them. You're getting royalties. Here are the royalty statements proving you got royalties from these sales. So in her mind, she has all the documentation to prove that everything is on the up and up. But what the jury sees is someone who survived the Holocaust and wrote a memoir about it. And now you're trying to take advantage of her. That's what they see. Right. It really cast Jane in a bad light. I don't
1: really know how much it mattered what she said. They had already made up their minds about it. And they do mention Ramona specifically the the attorney for Misha says Jane kind of damaged and inflated the settlement by mentioning Oprah and Disney. And I find that an interesting comment because again, those were not definite deals. They were potential deals. If Misha had cooperated, like Jane had these on the hook, but took Misha's cooperation to bring them to fruition she ended up getting a settlement, this is for Misha against Jane, of like twenty-two and a half million. But Jane's like, it's not like it was real money. So I found that very interesting. And I was wondering what your opinion was.
0: Yeah, I would like to have heard how it was portrayed, right? When when Jane was on the stand, was it, well, we had to deal with Disney and we had to deal with Oprah. However, that required this to happen, therefore those didn't happen. Or if it was just like, oh, did you have a deal with Disney? Yes. And wasn't allowed to say anything else. So what did the jury hear versus what actually happened? Right. Because trials tend to be less about facts and more about feeling in the end. And, and Jane seemed to be more about facts and Misha was everything that she does is about feeling. So. Yeah. And mind you, Misha does not speak.
1: (laughs) She is not, she doesn't speak in this whole documentary. We've seen in a couple of other documentaries where there's someone speaking on her behalf, let's say, and that is what is happening here. So Jane discusses once the settlement is handed out, she's financially devastated. um, I think probably emotionally as well, because, you know, it comes across really, it reflects poorly on her. I think that's probably the easiest way to say it. Um, She's a horrible person because she took advantage of a Holocaust survivor is how it reads. So, I really admire her because she does take a, take the action to get therapy to help herself. I think that would be any action you take when you're in those kinds of situations is positive, but I really admire somebody who's like I need to get my shit together like so I can, you know, figure out a good plan to handle this. And I think another very natural thing is she wants to understand what happened. Why did this get here? what is happening so she starts to pull apart the documentation she starts at the very beginning she's looking through things to make it make sense of it in her own head i think it's just i think when tragedy happens to you there is a comfort in understanding why even if there's not really an answer we still look for that so that's where
0: she's at right right she's going through everything because this started off so positive right Book sales were going to be amazing. It's a crazy story. And then it just all blew up in her face. So she's going through everything one by one, every piece of paper. And what she finds is a document that's like something from like Misha's banking or something. Right. And it has written in Misha's handwriting. It has her date of birth, her city of birth. And her mother's maiden name. Which wouldn't be a big deal other than the fact that Misha stated in her story over and over again that she didn't know her parents' surname. She only knew their first names. I have issues with that, first of all. As as a seven-year-old, I don't think I even knew my mother had a name other than mom. <laughs> okay. Right? At what, like, it's like 10 or 11 before you're like, oh, wait, you're an actual person? What? But you would, she would have had, at age seven, you know your last name, right? That's, the fact that anyone thought she didn't know her own last name, but remembered her parents' first names, that to me is questionable. Well,
1: I look at it from a child of the 80s where I had it drilled into me. What my name was first and last, what my fucking address was, what my phone number was because I was about to get stole at any moment and I had to have that information I had to have that information if I was ever getting back to my folks. So I agree. Seven to me, you probably know your last name, but again, people are in the zone of this crazy story. they're not gonna stop and be like, wait just a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they right. This aids the story because it's she's lost her past, basically. So, yeah. Imagine Jane coming across this information and being like, hold on. She said she didn't know that. So, I think because she's now uh, ferocious and looking for these clues, she just to dig in further.
0: Right. She decides to start... Well, she said she's going to write a book about it's jane's memoir about misha's memoir (laughs) essentially but she does it in a blog so she's not going to wait and publish it she's going to do it in a blog this is the what mid-aughts blogs are huge she doesn't think much of it she doesn't think anyone else will hear it i think part of it is just catharsis right getting the story out her version i agree
1: with you if she's wiped out financially, I don't even think that she's working. And so I think she needs an outlet real, real bad. And this is where she finds it. You know, (laughs) I, I super identify with like, what the fuck happened in this situation? How did I contribute? How can Mm -hmm. I keep it from happening again? So to go back through and go through all the details is very familiar to me. So yeah, I am a Jane. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she publishes the first or posts Mm -hmm. the first blog. And the next day she gets an email from Sharon Sargent, who's a genealogist. And she's like, I might be able to help, right? I can piece things together. I know where to look. Let's dig into this. Let's see what we can find. Do you find it funny that there's no time elapsed for
1: when she posts this blog to when she gets an answer? I'm like, is that is that for the sake of the
0: documentary? <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, but I mean, it's not like it takes... It's not like it shortens up the documentary. I guess it just sounds better if you're like, the very next day someone got in touch with me. Whereas, yeah, most blogs probably sit out there forever. Unless she was on a really good... Like, if she posted it specifically to uh, a group or a forum that was for this kind of thing, where someone would have happened upon it a little right. easier, I don't Agree. know. Agreed.
1: But it just kind of struck me as funny. I was like, damn, that is some, like, instant gratification. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the most American thing ever.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So the first thing Sharon does is start looking through pictures, kind of in a chronological order. There are, I guess, a lot of pictures in the book itself, but then she goes online and finds more pictures of Misha throughout her life. Right? The first one that she's looking at, there's there's a set of three pictures that were, Supposedly taken when she went to her new foster family, so she would have been age seven, and that's when these pictures mm-hmm. were taken. However, if you look at the pictures, this little girl looks four or five. She does not look seven. She looks very, very young. She's Agreed. a toddler. Agree. Right. Like very chubby. Like yeah. She's still got
1: that baby fat mm-hmm. look to her. She's adorable girl. But I agree. Like upon a more strenuous look at these pictures. I think most women would be like, seems weird.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then there's a picture of the foster grandparents. Remember the grandfather that was very nice to her, told her that her parents were in Germany and gave her a compass so she could run away. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, so (laughs) according to Misha's narrative, this grandfather was a farmer. However, if you look at his hands, they're pretty well manicured. He has jewelry on them. I know farmers today that wouldn't dare wear jewelry, even in a picture, maybe. But um, back in the day, I'm sure it was probably very similar. Right. So it just, it looks off. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it
1: had to be a genealogist that would look at that. Now, I can I can't understand a genealogist maybe looking at that initial Picture of a kid and saying that kid is younger than seven. You know what I mean? Like, but I don't think it necessarily takes that kind of an
0: eye to be like, that does not look like a farmer. No, but I think she was the one who was looking for something as opposed to just being like, yep, great pictures. Mm -hmm." You know? Yeah. So Sharon also starts comparing the American version of the book to other translations, particularly the French translation. Because the French translation would be issued in France and Belgium, right? So the name that Misha used in the French book is different than the name she used in the American book, American book. The name that was given to her by her foster family is what right. differs. Mm-hmm. Right. In the American book, the foster family's name was Duval. In the French book, the name was And that is kind of sketchy, but I'm like, was Misha the one translating the book? Because Misha speaks French and English, obviously. Is she the one who did the direct translation? Because I would think you would just send it off to a publisher and they would translate and it would go out, right? So how did she have control over the names being changed?
1: I mean, I could see her working with somebody and... Mm -hmm if you've ever done anything with Google translate, you know that sometimes it just comes back as absolute nonsense. So it makes sense to me that the things you are going to try to get right are names and places and dates and shit like that. And like, you know, a color of a thing might be different. So how stringent you are on the details is going to vary, but I would think the names and the dates and shit like that are going to be pretty important. So It doesn't surprise me to hear that now Vol and Duval Duval are pretty fucking close, though. But I think it just kind of sparks a little bit of, huh, wonder why that is.
0: Yeah. And here's where Jane is, like, excited on one hand because if she can prove that the story is fake, she might be able to overturn the judgment against her. However... If the story is real, you're digging into someone's history and past and trying to dredge all this stuff up when they've already been through so much trauma. And that's a horrible thing to do. And she's talking to us after the fact. So I'm not sure how much of this she really felt going into it or if she was like, the fucking balls to the wall, man, get my money back, get everything mm-hmm. back, right? Knowing now that it's fake, that she could come back and be like, oh, yeah, I really was questioning that, you know? Right. We have an aversion,
1: especially, I think, with Holocaust, because it was such a horrible event. These people are held in high esteem because they're survivors, and you just don't fuck with that. Right.
0: So, you know, they're kind of at a point where they need more resources. Sharon happens to know a genealogist in Belgium, whose name is Evelyn Handel. This lovely woman decides to help them. She herself was a hidden child during the war she was put into a catholic home and played that part and that's what helped her survive the war right and she's extremely thankful for that but when she was about 40 ish she had a bit of a breakdown which pushed her to find out more about her family and what happened to her family and it turns out that both her parents ended up in Auschwitz and they never made it out So she is somewhat invested in this as well. So here's another child who kind of went through the same thing she went through and she wants to help solve this.
1: Evelyn seems like a neat lady. She just seems so cool. And the journey she takes us on as the Watcher, I find very fascinating. It's very almost like Dan Brown. Um, It's almost like... Spy versus spy. It's like a little bit of a bit of cloak and dagger because they're looking for mm-hmm. records of were her parents deported? We find that. So they're looking at Nazi deportation records, which I'm like, who fucking knew that there was even a thing? That was a thing. I mean, it makes sense that you'd have to track it, but I'd never thought about it. So they're looking for the first name of the dad and the first name of the mom, because obviously from the story, we don't have their last name, two people with those first names deported at the same time somewhere, but we can't find that. So Evelyn's next move is she goes to the War Victims Archive in Brussels, and she's looking for a list of hidden children made by the Jewish Defense Committee. And this was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary because they had these children in a series of four small ledgers, like something easily you could fit into a pocket This is not like a giant spiral bound notebook or like a three ring binder or something like like we would do. Um, Trapper keeper. Yeah. (laughs) So it's discreet. And there are some different pieces of information that are needed. Who the parents of this child originally are, the Jewish parents. Who is this kid? Who is the rescuer? And the way they set this up was this information was in four of those four ledgers, but you had to have all of the ledgers together to find out where that kid was. I'm like, how ingenious, Mm -hmm. how clever. I thought the same thing. That is fucking genius. Yes. So I think the Holocaust was an interesting time because we see two very divergent streams of thinking like very creative Nazis, unfortunately, (laughs) very creative, and also very creative Jewish people to keep their people alive and like hiding people and, you know, people who were assisting um, people getting out of there. I mean, there's copious amounts of material that shown that there were people along the way that were helping to support others. And that's so admirable, but the way they did it was so ingenious. And so I think this is another example of they had their back against the wall. They had to come up with something that worked because they didn't have any choices. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and to think about the fact that in the middle of this chaos and terror, they had enough foresight to know that if the parents were deported and the children were there, they had to keep the children safe. They knew how to keep them safe. And also that it's possible the parents might come back. And so we need to be able to reunite mm-hmm. them. Once they come back. And I think most people in a crisis. Don't think that clearly. So yeah. And it's not like you can rely on the kids.
1: Because they could be too little. To know any of this. And the rescuers. Yeah. Would they remember who the fuck these parents were? I don't know. Did they make it out okay? Yeah. They might
0: not even know.
1: Yeah. This was a, a brilliant part of this this documentary for me. And the fact that they have those records. Unbelievable. So. I agree. So Misha was not found in any of those books. There was no record of her having been a hidden child in the traditional sense. Okay. There's no proof of wrongdoing. She could have been an unlisted hidden child because sometimes they just threw, I mean, like they just were like, you know, they were undocumented basically. So it's possible she could have been in that camp as well. So and I love that Evelyn has this knowledge of the situation. I mean, she's just the greatest example of the right person at the right time to handle this very sensitively. And I dig that about her. So they decide, well, there's no Jewish records. Let's look for Catholic records. It's an interesting premise, right?
0: Yeah, that that's something I didn't think about either. They're like, well, she's, if she's not Jewish, she would have been Catholic. So it's possible she's not Jewish. Let's look over here. And so they decided to try to go to the different churches throughout uh, the town where she was born. They know where she was born because she wrote it down on the bank documents and try to find these records, any baptismal records, birth records, things of that nature. And they thought they were out of luck. The first church, like, there's nothing. The second church, nothing. The third church was, like, burnt to the ground. And they're like, well, this sucks. But then they found out that the records were kept in a different building, like an office building was, like, next to the church had burned down. So they have the records. And lo and behold, that's where Misha's name was found. However, it wasn't Misha. Monique DeWall was found, which was the name that Misha said her foster family gave her. But again, this is not necessarily a smoking gun because some families would take in the Jewish children and give them the names of children that their children that might have already passed. So it looks legitimate that they have this child that has the same name as their child. So again, not quite a smoking gun. So they needed more proof. They decided to go, I say they, Evelyn decided to go see if she can find the school because Misha has talked about writing a certain trade line or walking a direction. I don't know. Evelyn is using,
1: the premise in the book, the details in the book to narrow down where she's looking Mm -hmm. basically.
0: So it's like a mystery novel. So fucking cool. (laughs) Well, she finds the school and she walks in and she asks for records and there it is. There's Monique's name. She went to school there. So that to them is a smoking gun because if the original Monique had passed and they gave this other child the name, I don't know that they would have school records because that child wouldn't have gone to school. And I don't know that they would have sent Monique, the new Monique, to school. I'm guessing is their logic.
1: Okay. I guess I was thinking, like, to me, it proved that there was no big gap. Like, she was accounted for the time that she was, she said she was in the woods. That's how I read that. But it's a fair statement because they did not necessarily spell it out. They didn't, right?
0: So that's what I was thinking, too. Did they show her attendance for years and years, right, when she said she was supposed to be in the woods? Or was it just there's her name one time? You're right. They don't clearly state that. So I wasn't sure why that was the smoking gun Mm -hmm. when other things weren't.
1: Maybe it's a combination of both. And that got edited out. (laughs) Like, they're like, nobody's going to care about this (laughs) stupid detail. (laughs) They're just going to be like,
0: yes. right well the errands care we always care and you see evelyn she's angry she's a little bit disgusted here's a here's a woman who legitimately lived through this looking into the story of a woman who didn't but told the story for what for attention for money for for what you know right
1: At this point, it's unclear. We don't really understand kind of the context behind how we got to this narrative. Can I please just tell you that the way the documentary footage changed here was brilliant. I'm not going to say anything else than that because I really want people to go and watch this one because the way they did it was very clever. So, you know, Jane comes back and she says, this book is a huge bestseller in Europe mind you the movie has already premiered and it's getting rave reviews right while they are kind of pondering what is the best method of delivery for the information that they've gathered together they decide that they're going to post it on Jane's blog and they also mentioned emailing somebody but I didn't catch who that somebody was at the Washington Times the New York Post I don't know
0: someone in Belgium they said okay there you go that's vague
1: But again, here's another example. It was front page news the next morning. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be connected to Jane
0: Daniels. Right. She gets shit done.
1: Yes, (laughs) she really does. So then we get the cascade of different people that we've already talked to in this documentary, like Joni, the wolf expert, Pat, another connection from where Misha lives. And they were all talking about how betrayed they felt, how they cried and how they didn't want to believe, but it all lined up nicely and you know just the story and everything kind of crumbled
0: <laughs> uh from mm-hmm. this kind of revelation here right i think what's really interesting to me is that while they were doing all the research misha was in europe touring around doing events for the book at colleges for the movie talking to morning shows she was just doing it all mm-hmm. right and then all of a sudden, this bomb drops, right? And mind you, at home
1: in Massachusetts, she had been hitting people up at the temple for money. There had been neighbors that were giving her thousands and thousands of dollars to help them save their house because, you know, of course, the the story they were getting was, "Jane's the worst, and she's not giving me any money, and we're going to be in the, you know." in the poor house because of this. And I'm like, did they not work before? How did they afford anything before the book came out? Sorry. Just a question that I had. Cause it was like, this might any fucking sense. What's Maurice doing? Right. Maurice. God damn it. Maurice <laughs> get with the program. They do talk to a lady. That's a teacher. Her name is Marie Claire momette. Um, mm-hmm. And she's one of the connections mm-hmm. that Misha stayed at her house. They were like super good buds. And you know, she also felt like kind of weirded out by this, and she talks to Misha about it. And Misha's like, It's just that publisher in America, like, there was mm-hmm. even a last ditch effort to try to, you know, kind of keep it
0: together here, but it doesn't work. No, because Mark, I'm gonna slaughter this last name, met Den Penningen. <laughs>
1: There's a lot better of letters than me. I just wrote Mark.
0: <laughs> uh, Mm -hmm. Mark, the journalist, he hears this and he's like, I need to know the real story. I need to know who she Mm -hmm. really is. So he starts going through the phone books in Brussels and starts calling all the DeWalls he can find. And when he gets to about the 43rd, 44th one, he speaks to someone named Emma DeWall, who happened to be Misha's aunt. I wouldn't say she's a lovely person. Um... Interesting, certainly. Not a fan of Misha. That's for damn sure. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. right? He meets her and apparently Emma says, well, she's always been delusional creating imaginary worlds for herself. And I'm like, okay, but yeah, kids do that. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and then also we meet Jean-Philippe (laughs) Tondor. Again, I probably slaughtered that name, but I like the name (laughs) Jean-Philippe. Right? He's a, a war historian and he's working with Mark. So they are working on the story of Misha. And to do that, they look into Robert, who was her father, mm-hmm. who happened to work um as a reserve officer. And when the Germans, not Germans, just Germans, <laughs> when the Germans invaded Belgium, they crushed it pretty quickly. And the king surrenders, and Belgium becomes occupied. So now there's a resistance force, and Robert is part of the resistance. And he begins to recruit others. Mm -hmm. He is involved gathering weapons, part of an intelligent network, and he's trying to also transmit intelligence messages to the Belgian government, which, if I'm not mistaken, was now in London. That seems not okay. Like, hey, you guys, best of luck. We're going over here.
1: What? I mean... Uh, why are we surprised by anything at this point? Old Robert is not discreet about what he's doing. A little braggadocious. It seems to be the way it's portrayed here. And everybody's like, look, my man, maybe cut it out and just be cool because you're not. This is not a game. This is pretty
0: fucking scary. Should you get caught? And lo and behold, right? He does. He does. I mean the first rule of intelligence is you don't fucking say shit right yeah like fight club god damn just like fight club so robert his wife and 41 other resistance fighters are arrested and deported to germany and put in prison robert is interrogated and he cracks now i don't blame him it would take very little for me to start telling everyone secrets i've ever met right so you're saying so everyone knows don't right tell away me anything important <laughs> The wrong pair of shoes make me walk in them for half a day. That's it. (laughs) I'm telling you whatever you want. But he cracks. He makes a deal with the Germans. He will give up the other resistance fighters Mm -hmm. for a couple of things. Now, he wants his wife to be safe. Uh, He would like to see his daughter again. And were there any other? I think just those two things. That's all I had. He does get to see Misha one last time in August of 1942, but then him and his wife were deported and they both died in German camp. So apparently they didn't have to uphold their end of that bargain because the wife was not protected. Yeah, it didn't seem to go too well
1: for her. Mm -mm. So at this point, we go back to Aunt Emma and she says that they called Misha the traitor's daughter and she's labeled as such. And I think that that's extremely unfair to a little kid who had nothing to do with any of this. Right now, I can understand the anger of the people of Belgium to the Nazis. I think that that's okay. I think it's even okay to say, boy, Robert kind of fucks some stuff up. But to like, he's known as having been a collaborator, he's known for having cracked under torture and again i'm like torture is torture for a reason it's effective it's just such a strange thing to be like well that motherfucker gave up people and i'm like you have no idea how many people i'd be giving up if somebody put screws to my thumbnails
0: jesus christ yeah everyone everyone's going down mm-hmm. with me we're all going down together yeah right yeah i was appalled because even when she said it in the video how many years later she sounded disgusting saying. Disgusting? Disgusted. Saying that about Misha, that she was the traitor's daughter. Like, they didn't even want to look at her anymore. And I'm like, no wonder why she turned into someone with a different life in her head. Because you've created a situation that is not good.
1: And even Evelyn comes back and she says, I feel some pity for her. Like, for what Mm -hmm. she went through. Because that is a terrible situation to put a kid in. I don't know what good outcome would have, <laughs> what what could right. she have done. She's at the mercy of her caregivers. So mm-hmm. it's just fucking terrible.
0: It is. In February of 2008, they published Robert's story. She talks about his betrayal. It talks about the falseness of Misha's story. And Misha did have a response to it. Here is what Misha said. She said, They called me the traitor's daughter because my father was suspected of having spoken under torture. This book, this story is mine. It is not the actual reality, but it is my reality, my way of surviving. I ask forgiveness. All I ever wanted was to exercise my suffering.
1: I think the question at this point becomes what was her intent here? Because the money stuff makes me have a hard time with this.
0: Yes, but on the other hand, it did take a couple years for her to even get talked into telling her story. So, it seems like for her, she almost started it as a way of... I don't want to say to be more interesting, but she was not happy with her childhood and her family. And this was a way to make her feel like she... Um... I don't know how to say it. She was relevant. Uh, She had a place. I mean, any of that? Right. She could have done Mm -hmm. it in a way that didn't make her portray a Holocaust survivor, right? When she's not even Jewish. So that's the part that gets me is I understand creating a different narrative for your life because you don't like the one that you have, right? If you move to a new town and no one knows you, absolutely. It doesn't matter it should not harm anyone else in the process though. And this could cause harm. So yeah. And then I start to wonder how much did she believe herself? At what point was there any point where it became like you lied to yourself so much that it becomes your new reality. Right.
1: Um, I think talking uh, well, hearing what Emma had to say kind of makes me think that she was pretty heavily invested, right? Also, they never really talked to her husband or they never really give a lot of perspective from old Maurice. So I'm like, um, really the only thing we get from him is that they're in financial trouble at some point and he encourages her initially to go and tell her story. So I'm like, was he complicit as well? I don't know.
0: Right? Someone I absolutely loved was named... Deborah Twork, she's a Holocaust historian. She received the manuscript from Jane in 1996. She called Jane and explained to her why the narrative didn't work. Now, she doesn't explain to us why she said the narrative didn't work. She just says that she told Jane, this cannot be true. Do not publish this book, at least not as a memoir. If you want to publish it as fiction, fine, right? But to publish it as a memoir is not good. And yet Jane did, for whatever reasons. And Deborah thinks it, it's greed or whatever. But I really like the way she puts it. She says, I think we would all like to believe that Misha believed that she was that little girl, right? That we were not so naive to be taken in by someone who was just acting, right? She, If she believed it, then so could we. It makes it easier for us.
1: Because we're more, in this one case, willing to accept someone who might have some mental
0: illness <laughs> rather than an out-and-out liar. Right. And we don't want to think that we can be taken in so easily. Right. But I love Deborah. She's like, I think it's all nonsense. It's bullshit. She knew what she was doing the whole time. And as much as I want to believe that she did believe it to a certain extent, her statement in response to the story about her family makes me think, nope, she knew exactly what was real and what wasn't.
1: Yeah. Again, I will say that she declined to be interviewed, so we don't get her perspective out of her own mouth. Um, Now, this happened some years ago, right? 30 years ago. I think it would have been really interesting to understand, you know, what the deal was. But, of course, you know, she decided not to speak. But she and Maurice still live in Massachusetts as of when the documentary was released.
0: Right. Right. And after the memoir was revealed to be untrue, financial judgment against Jane Daniel was partially overturned. I would love to see the details on that. So much. I caught the same. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) Were they like, listen, bitch, you should have done your research ahead of time. You don't get it all back. I mean, it could be
1: a thousand different things, right? Maybe we'll have to look that up. I also want to mention at this point, (laughs) the Oprah thing. (laughs) I think her first book, or one of the very first, I mean, maybe it wasn't the absolute first book, but in the first few, there was a book called A Million Little Pieces, right? And that was a book, and I never read it, but the short synopsis that I'll remember, and see if you get it the same way, is it was a husband and wife, and one of them was an addict of some kind, and it was a memoir about that. However. However it also was proven to be fake. It was not a real story. And so I wonder if that made everybody, like Oprah especially, really careful about how they proceeded with books after that. Just a thought.
0: It's interesting to me that these stories come out And they would be amazing fiction. But is it because they think it will sell better as a memoir because it's so unbelievable that people won't believe it as fiction that they're like, well, we're going to put it out this way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What possesses someone to go from writing a story that you know is fiction and passing it off as a memoir? I also
1: think it's interesting. Like, what is the responsibility of a publisher? How much do you have to check
0: before you put the stamp on things? You know what I mean? Like. Well, that's what I was wondering with the partial <laughs> yeah. overturned judgment. Was it because part of that responsibility is on the publisher? I would think, I mean, it's not like a journalist, mm-hmm. which we have found of late that they have no responsibility whatsoever, but in theory. So I don't, I don't know what the responsibility is for the publisher. I would think some, you're putting something out there. You're putting mm-hmm. your name on it. You would think if nothing else, you would want to check just to keep your own reputation. And these would all be like civil things, right? There's not a law here. Yeah, I don't
1: know. So I think that that's an interesting aspect of it too. So what I heard is that when we publish our memoir, we're gonna to have to be careful what we say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god, it would be so short and so boring, <laughs> at least from my perspective, on my side. One chapter. Oh my
1: god, that's so funny. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think a behind-the-scenes VH1 type of thing would be better. Or
1: like us, a yeah. Lifetime movie. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean. I'm divorced, right? All I need to is like a haunting and like Mm. a stalker. And that's the trifecta, I think, to have a Lifetime movie. So,
0: Well, if the stalker is living in the ceiling and you think it's a haunting, that's a twofer.
1: Boom. There you go. Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) We should be writing movies, Right?
1: We'd be so good. Okay.
0: But I will say I'm very happy you picked this. I have seen it, you know, come across my screen a couple times and I'm always like, meh. So I'm glad I was forced to watch it because it was really, really good. And you're right. It goes by very quickly because they do a really good job of telling the story and getting you invested. So,
1: right. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I hope that our listeners go and check it out and let us know what they think, because it was, um, it almost is like a movie. It's very dramatic. Mm -hmm. So I I really liked it as well. Uh, Do you have an honorary Aaron? for this week?
0: I do. This week I picked Sharon because she was like, listen, I can fucking solve this problem. I'm going to fix it and I'm going to solve it. And that's the kind of, uh, it's the kind of energy I try to bring to things. Yeah. Fix it energy. I love that. Mm -hmm. How about you?
1: I chose Joni. She's the wolf expert. And I, I really am curious about, so Misha had to sell this to her in a way because she's a scientist, right? Or mm-hmm. right next door. So Misha had to know about wolf society. She had to do all that. And then she had such comfort with the animals that I'm like, somebody with, um, you know, a logical brain, I think probably Sharon's in the same boat. Like, you know, kind of feelings aside should mm-hmm. have been enough to reason this out, but it didn't work. Because Misha was so convincing. So, I don't know. I just kind of feel like Joni. I feel, is my spirit animal in this. Because I would have been sucked in after watching that wolf
0: put its head in her mouth and not kill her. So, Right. Right. But as we've learned, white women aren't afraid of any animals. We'll just walk right up. (laughs) Pet them. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Especially if they're fluffy.
1: (laughs) Exactly. 100%. All right.
0: Okay. What are we doing next week?
1: All right. So you have brought us uh, the documentary to watch for next week. It's called just one mile. It is on Amazon. Damn it. Amazon prime. That's where it is. (laughs) Amazon. Amazon. That's the one. I believe it's rentable. So I think it's totally going to be worth your couple bucks. It's a 2023 release, an hour and 36
0: minutes. Do you want to get us a synopsis? So, we're going back to extreme marathons and Mm -hmm. this is a version of that in essentially people just run until they die. That's not (laughs) what it is, but it feels like it. There's a one mile loop that Mm -hmm. they continuously run and run until there's only one left standing, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but I think it's in the mountains. So it's uphill a lot of the way and then downhill the other part. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty grueling. And I, um, I'm just so fascinated by extreme marathons and people that do them. So hopefully this lives up to our gnome experience.
1: Agreed. I keep thinking of Highlander when we keep doing these, there can only be one. right? So I'm looking forward to it. I I too don't have this part of the brain. So I'm very interested Mm -hmm. in people who are like, I'm going to spend some time and certainly some money proving to myself that I'm
0: tough yeah that I can run until I physically cannot anymore which for me would be like less than a block honestly right (laughs) yeah it's not my jam but all right guys come check us out on instagram x facebook and go doc and leave us messages and suggestions and we'll talk to you next week all right later Bye. bye It's a nice to-